Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Cujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil. I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest today is Alvin Hope Johnson. Now, Alvin has been in the real estate industry for over 35 years, starting as a handyman, (laughs) selling painting and repair (laughs) services door to door and has amassed a real estate empire over $225 million. He's also the CEO of Multifamily Monopoly, an educational platform for real estate investors interested in the process of multifamily development and ownership. And he is also the president of Hope Housing Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit. With a little over 1,300 affordable housing units and growing, the foundation is building an additional 1,000 units for completion in 2023 and new multifamily housing developments for the workforce community in North Texas and Wisconsin. And so Alvin also as a way of providing affordable development services for new build communities, a development firm was born. AHJ Development Company is a fully integrated design and development firm that handles all foundation development ventures. And AHJ Development Company is also led by Alvin a licensed general contractor in several states. Man, Alvin, you have a really, really deep background in real estate. Thank you so much for being on our show. Man, thanks. I was about to say that dude sounds pretty dope until you said it was me. Then I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) all from starting as a handyman. I mean, that's amazing. Well, man, I just needed to eat. (laughs) That's really all. That's what it came from. And I didn't go to college. So I learned a trade and I mastered that trade of house painting and house painting just led me further down this rabbit hole of real estate. Yeah. Wow, man. That's amazing. So I went through your background high level, but give us a quick insight of your story and who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, Roger, I tell you, man, you have a great audience. I'm sure I know a little bit about your background and you and I have had an opportunity to meet in person. So Telling you a little bit about who I am, most of the time, most men will say, oh, I'm a football player, oh, I'm a developer, oh, I'm this and that and the other. I'm literally still figuring out who I am. So I'll tell you, my name is Alvin Hope Johnson. The hope came because there was a time in my life where all I had was a hope and a prayer. And that's how Hope Housing Foundation was born at a point where I found myself after volunteering for a guy. Well, let me back up a little bit. So I started as a handyman painting houses million-dollar houses in the 80s, and that led to me knocking on doors to be a contractor to paint those houses that were in the older part of the neighborhood after a few years of the guy I worked for going out of business. I knocked on the right door, and this guy turned me into a paint contractor extraordinaire overnight, gave me a project that turned us into a millionaire in my early 20s. And shortly thereafter, a fool and his money are quickly parted. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly thereafter, by 1989, I didn't have any more money. Interest rates were 18, 19, 20%. There was no construction going on anywhere. And so I took a pivot and uh, had some life challenges happen. And I won't go into that on this story. Well, I will, man, because you got a great audience of high level people that have had some ultra level success and they've had some failures. And so coming back from the failures is really a big part of my story. 
On my son's third birthday in 1989, I tried to kill myself. I put a 38 to my head, pulled the trigger, the gun didn't go off, took a bottle of nitroglycerin pills and said, ah, this will do it. Woke up 10 days later in the hospital, man, and uh, realized that, boy, you're a loser. <laughs> you couldn't even kill yourself. So that was probably hmm. the lowest point in my life. And then it took about six months for my family to nurse me back to health mentally and literally physically. And I took a couple of years off out of the real estate business. And I think it was about 1993 or four when I got back into contracting again after spending a couple of years on the road, driving a truck, getting to know myself, living in a little bitty box and figuring out who I was and all that stuff. And so I got back into the real estate space. I had a job for five years in a chemical plant and I realized that that wasn't for me. Took my 401k and went all the way into real estate again and started contracting in Houston. A few years of that, I got into the mortgage business. This guy was doing all of my loans and he said, oh man, you're making so much money. You need to open a mortgage company. Man, I didn't even know what a mortgage was, but we opened a mortgage company in 96 and I ran that all the way through 2007 and 2008. And then I met this guy that I volunteered for. He had 16,000 units of apartments. And all of that was under a nonprofit umbrella. And he said, Alvin, man, the work you're doing and the work you want to do with your nonprofit is really great, but let me show you a higher level of impact. So he met with me in Dallas. It was early 2007. And after that meeting, man, Virgil, this dude walked in the room and he sucked the air out of the room. I mean, it was just like, damn, this dude is so good looking. I mean, <laughs> I just knew he was drawing me to him so much. Well, anyway, for the first three weeks after that meeting, he answered my call and then he quit answering my call, but I kept calling and I literally called him, emailed him or text him every week for one year. And in February 2008, he picked up the phone and said, Alvin Johnson, man, I am so tired of you. I said, oh, shit, I'm glad you know it was me. <laughs> and so if you really want to know what I do, you can come up here and I'll put you up for 30 days. I was living in Houston, Texas. I got the biggest suitcase I could find. And I went to Amarillo, Texas. I didn't have any plans on coming back. He said 30 days, but I knew that I was going to add enough value to where he wasn't going to send me back. Well, after 30 days, he literally called me and said, hey, Alvin, where you been? I've been all over the country. He had 16,000 units. We had 66 communities in nine states. I went to every property, every city. I talked to every economic development director in those cities. I was trying to find out what was going on with these communities, why they were the way they were, work with the police departments in some cities to set up crime prevention stuff. I did all this in 30 days. So in 30 days, when he told me, hey, how many 30 days up? What are you going to do? I'm like, man, I can't go home. I'm not going anywhere unless you send me. Well, after 90 days, Verge, he came to me and said, Alvin, you still here? We bumped into each other in the hallway. He didn't know that I was still there. I said, how are you living? And so I said, man, I'm glad you asked. I just sent my last money back to the house to pay our bills. So he put me on a stipend from that point forward. And man, it was eight months, nine months later, he died in a car wreck. And I literally hmm. became the president of this foundation that had 16,000 units of apartments. And it sounds really, wow. really cool. And I was the last guy standing, but I had worked my tail off to be there. I was not qualified to sit in that seat by a lot of people's standards, but I knew the mortgage business. I knew real estate. I had poured myself into this business 
And so when he died and I became the president, the, the foundation was in a bankruptcy. And so we sat around and wrote a bankruptcy plan that would have gotten all of their money back plus some. Because literally what happened after 2009, the real estate market did this and all of those properties that they sold for pennies on a dollar traded three times the value that they sold them for twice what they would have been worth if we had kept them. And so, but anyway, I wasn't qualified with those thousand dollar an hour attorneys to make those decisions. So they <laughs> rolled me out the door and I wound up here at Hope Housing Foundation with a hope and a prayer that one day we would be able to make some impact. And today our goal is 20,000 units of high performance housing for the workforce community of America. And that's where we're, you know, we got about 700 units right now that we definitely will start this year. My goal was a thousand. Next year, we'll start 3000 units. And in the process of starting those 3,000 units, we will complete the 700 or so that we're starting this year because they're about a 12-month build process. We're going to open up our manufacturing plant for our structurally insulated panels. And so next year is going to be super, super busy and just super excited, man. It's, I could go on and on. That's an amazing story. The thing I wanted your audience to hear was, here you heard a guy that was at his lowest point, couldn't even kill himself, have come back because of the people that I put myself around and the things that I have just devoured over the years to try to become better, to have a vision like this, to go lead people to do 20,000 units of housing when I didn't even think I could lead myself at one point. So it's pretty dope. That is really powerful. One of the things that I've seen in successful people, people who are doing things at a high level, is that they're persistent, first and foremost. What you said from contacting him every week for a year. Some people wouldn't even do one time, right? right? Or some people would give up after one month. But you had the persistence to keep on going because you knew that you wanted to get something done or you knew that you wanted to get a goal accomplished. And I know a little bit about your story and you mentioned on today's show that you didn't even go to college. What does that mindset look like for someone who doesn't have the college degree, someone who may not have had the credentials prior to being where you are today, but still being able to push through barriers, push through obstacles to develop the real estate business that you have today. Man, I got two thoughts there. And the first one, I'm doing an assessment with a young lady who's coaching me on developing my story. And she told me, oh, I know what kind of dude you are. You one of them kids that put your hand on the stove and then leave it there. And I had to think about that. <laughs> And so I don't know where she's going to take me with that today, but a lot of my life has been that. But the other side of that, I'll tell you, I was on a podcast about a month ago and this guy asked me almost a similar question. He said, Alvin, what drove you to knock on those doors till you got to the right guy? I said, well, I'll tell you. And Yannick, I had to think about that. And the thought I had that I'm really diving into now really, really deeply is that most of the decisions I've made out of my life to this point, and I could look back six months ago, most of those decisions, probably 97% of the bad decisions that I made in my life were made out of fear. I married this wow. person because I was afraid I was going to lose her. I married this person because I didn't want to be by myself. I didn't go to college because I was afraid to leave home. I didn't do this because I was afraid of that. I hired this person because I was afraid that if this didn't happen, that would happen. And so all of those decisions made from a level of fear 
obviously weren't good, but now there have been a lot of great things that have come out of my life. Like, you know, I try to kill myself out of fear that tomorrow would be worse than today. All yeah. of these fear-based decisions, I knocked on those doors because I needed to eat. I kept calling Steve because I knew he had something that I needed and there was no other way for me to get it. So in some levels, that fear has really propelled me to continue and push and push and push and be tenacious in areas where everybody else would have quit. But on the other side of that coin, that same level of fear has caused me to make some catastrophic decisions that had I not made decisions based out of fear with the same level of tenacity, no telling where I'd be. Yeah, man, that's powerful right there. I'm literally last a month. So here I am, 57 years old, living all these years out of fear. So I'm just figuring it out. So thank you for helping me be better because the more I get to talk about this, the better I become. That's where the healing is. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that part of your story. And a lot of times as people, we make the biggest strides when our backs up are against the wall, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. successful entrepreneurs, people who perform at a high level, have that intrinsic sense of urgency type of fear complex, right? Because it's like, yeah. I have this goal, I want to accomplish it. And there's something behind me that I don't want to go back to. And I mean, that's the same mindset that I had when I was trying to get to the NFL. I grew up in a third world country, came to this country with a bag of clothes. We were on food stamps. We were just trying to make it right. And I had this goal that I wanted to retire my mom. I had this goal that I want to buy my mom a house. And this intrinsic fear inside of me was something that drove me to push, keep to going, best. keep taking those punches, even though it's something <laughs> that was tough to do, right? Keep getting up after I got knocked down. And today I've bought my mom the house and the next step is retirement. So man, that's amazing that we have that connection. Yeah. I've never heard anybody say it that way. Afraid of something that we don't want to go back to. Yeah. That is exactly it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dive right into it because you have a different business model that is a little bit that is not necessarily seen a lot in the public eye from an investment perspective. You have different entities, whether it's a nonprofit, your for-profit, your property management company. You're also, again, a licensed general contractor. What's your business model in today's real estate environment? Why do you have a nonprofit and you also have a for-profit and those vertically integrated systems that may have led to the success that you had today? Awesome. Good question. Well, I'll tell you, my background was always construction. But when I stepped into the market space, I just kept doing houses and stuff like that just for myself. But when I stepped into the Seat of Hope Housing Foundation as a president, when we bought our first property, taking bids from contractors going, no, I can't pay you that because I know what it takes. And so the first couple of deals were really painful to do that and then not get the quality that we wanted. So I had to check with my attorneys and counsel and all that stuff to make sure because for profit, nonprofit, we didn't want to step into anything, any form or anything that looked like private endearment. I'm not using a nonprofit to benefit myself in any way, shape, form or fashion. So the thought process, Yannick, was to have a company that supported the nonprofit and did the work more economically and more owner friendly 
for the entity at a better price. And so we take three bids from all these clowns. I'm sorry, all these contractors. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll go, no, man, we got 50 guys that can do this work for us. So I went and got my GC license. And so we did that. And we just started that work for the development company as a pass through for the nonprofit, not making any money on it, just saving the entity money. That was the purpose of why I got licensed and why I started what was Empowered Services that we've turned into HJ Development Company. So the property management is wholly owned by Hope Housing Foundation. We ain't trying to get rich on the property management. We started property management because we had three property management companies that tanked our properties because nobody's going to manage your assets like you. So we hired the right personnel that fit in with the communities that we owned that could provide better management services to our residents and better asset protection for our assets. So then a management company was born. And so from the management company, the construction company at that point, and the umbrella ownership company, three years ago, we got to a place where I couldn't find any assets that made sense for us to buy. Prices were doing this at a decent cap rate that fit our current level of capital. You know, I had spoiled some investors. We were buying deals at 10 caps. And if it wasn't a 10 cap, we didn't even look at it. Well, that went away three or four years ago. So I started looking for ways to build some houses, buy some land, develop it, and then sell those houses within a year and come back into this multifamily space with a pile of money. That was my thought process. Well, we went out and bought 81 acres of land in Greenville, Texas, developed it, and literally just started delivering lots to a national home builder this month. But two and a half, three years ago is when that started. And I said, well, if we can build 300 houses in a year, why can't I build 300 apartments in a year? And so I started looking for ways to do that. And I found this structurally insulated panel process. I poured myself into it, getting all the information I could. I have interviewed and toured many, many companies in the U.S. that make it. They're not many, but just like cars, all cars aren't created equal. All panels aren't created equal either. So we found the best partners to partner with to help us do this 20,000 units in five years. So I literally was looking for the best system to do it, the best way to do it. And here's another nugget. How do we all make ourselves stand out in a crowded room of people doing the same thing. There has to be a differentiator. Well, I could have been a developer that just builds apartments and that would have made me just another developer that builds apartments. Cool thing. But we found the best technology to build the best apartments on the planet, high performance buildings that withstand 200 mile an hour wind ratings. They are super energy efficient. They're near net zero. We could put panels on the roof and pull them completely off of the grid. We could plant enough trees around the property to where that property would have a positive footprint on the planet versus pulling from the planet. In thinking about a way to be different and thinking about a way to be able to scale a business and thinking of a way to be able to provide the best level of service in anything that we do. They've been using these panels for a long time, but the thought process of doing 20,000 units in five years was born. I know we can do it. I know we can hit it. That'll again lead to our own manufacturing plant of panels. The company that we're using to buy ours, the guy that set that company up is going to set one up for us. So that'll also give us an opportunity to reduce recidivism in and out of prisons. How? 
we have curriculum already in place for our building trades, uh, mechanicals, electricals, and plumbing, to where we're going to source some labor from the Texas penal system originally or initially and give some people an opportunity to learn some building trades. Also to come work in our manufacturing plant, manufacturing our panels. They can become good enough to become subcontractors to literally go out and help us build these apartments. So that's the goal. That's the thought process to have a self-feeding ecosystem where we can find a piece of dirt, we can design it, we can build it, we can manufacture all the products in the middle to build it, we can have the people that build it live in them and just continue to do this. And I think this model will go on long after I'm gone. And so the for-profit side just originally was born just so that we could provide the level of services that the nonprofit needed at a discounted cost because we don't need to get rich doing that. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash passive guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash passive guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's a great way to explain that ecosystem. And that makes total sense. You know, the benefits when it comes to, to vertically integrated, I think the two biggest benefits is controlling outcome and costs. And there are different profit centers that you can have within your vertical integration Absolutely. ecosystem, like you said, but having the ability to cut costs, right? Because you're paying the construction can be at cost. There's a cost to construction and there's a premium that on the amount that you can make. If you, if, right. Let's say if you're bidding it out to potential clients, but being able to leverage that at cost and have these different business entities, like you said, to add value to your nonprofit. I mean, that makes total sense. The one thing that we are outsourcing on these new bills is the overall general contracting. Yeah, I'm a licensed GC. I had never built a 60, 70 million dollar project. So to give my lenders comfort, which they demanded <laughs> and to give our investors comfort, which we wanted to give or our partners comfort in these deals. We hired a GC that does about 300 million in multifamily a year so that their performance bond, capable of getting a performance bond, which they're gonna provide yeah. for us. So it takes all the risk away with getting this thing built. We know it'll get built. Yeah. And then we rely on the data for the lease up. Yeah, and I can see that too. Your lender doesn't want to get too deep in bed with you. Right. You're having all you of these. All of this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this whole ecosystem and you're packaging it up and they should just bet on everything with your name on it. So I can totally see that. No, that's amazing how you were able to create those different functions that can add value to your business. You touched on the SIP panel construction. Mm -hmm. And I know a little bit about it from presentations that I saw back on the early days of Clubhouse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but let's go a little bit deeper into that building system. Yeah. In the world of supply chain issues, in the world of construction costs and delivery times that can impact your construction numbers. And, and we talk about labor and those sorts of turmoil that we've been experiencing over the past 12 to 24 months. How beneficial has that been with 
delivering your projects on time and just overall streamlining development in today's environment? So I've never built with a panel. So full disclosure, I have built a house, one house. I had never seen these panels four years ago, two and a half years ago after doing all this discovery. I took four of my guys to Arkansas and we built a house in two and a half days. Dried in, complete, two-story house. Whoa, this is pretty dope. But I'll tell you the biggest part. So we bought a project last year, put it under contract. And what has happened in the last 12 months, literally, is our team has come together. So we bought this project. It was permitted. It was ready to go for stick build construction. I didn't want to do that. We're going to do it with SIPs. I hired the first architect firm, wasted three months with them, wasted $150,000. My contractor said, hey, we have a relationship with another guy. He's done this for us before. We hired him. They had three months worth of delays toward the end. But in that process, what has happened, Yannick, is I've learned so much, but we've had other members from outside of the original team come together. So this first development is fully designed. Permits are in. I mean, the plans are in with the city. It's great. I'm super proud of it. But the first one is never the best one, right? The second one is always is better than the first. And so because the team came together so strategically on this second project, we have a meeting every day at 2.30 with the architects, the engineers, the mechanical guys, the electricians, like 15 people, and they're literally hammering out problems for an hour and a half every day. Something that would have taken six months is getting done in six weeks. So when you've got a vertically integrated team, you're talking about the dollars saved on not just paying an architect half a million dollars, paying an engineer 200000 and all of that, getting them all on the same team, walking this thing together with, again, six weeks in one week, could have been six months. This project that we took over two months ago, the end of June for 180 units in Kakana, Wisconsin, we've got plans already submitted to the city there as of Friday last week for those 180 units because of those meetings every day. So that project would have taken six, eight months to develop had we sourced it out here, sourced it out there. We've come together in literally two months and we're waiting on permits. So that's the power of the vertical integration. That's the power of a team coming together. And all these people aren't salaried for me. Consultants, everybody wants a piece and everybody gets a piece, but their piece is less than it would have been had we sourced all of this out to three or four different companies. So it's been amazing to watch this happen. Man, it just being able to cut down that timeline, <laughs> I'm sure it was yeah. such a relief because development is a pretty long process. If you're in the game of development, you have to have patience. It's not like just acquisitions where you find a property, you buy it and you start get the cash flow on a monthly basis. Development, it takes time and going through all of these professionals and they've got stuff that they're doing on their end. But to have a a product that is streamlined and you're able to cut down not only the cost, but also the time as well, because time kills deals. People say that all the time in real estate. So how can someone get these panels if they're interested in doing a development with them? Man, I would recommend doing some research on SIPs.org. That's a really good website. You'll find some manufacturers there that may resonate with you. There are a couple of companies across the country. I don't want to recommend any single one company because there are a couple of really good ones. I think 
in any other type of relationship, once you find what you're looking for and you know what you're looking for, then you're going to look for the person that talks your language, right? You know you want a Cadillac. Now, which Cadillac dealer am I going to go to? So I think that's the way that once you look at that website, find some companies that are doing this, and then start interviewing them, see if they can handle the capacity that you want. That's a good first start. 12 months from now, you better just pick up the phone and call me. We're going to have our own plant. And then we'll be able to get you on schedule. <laughs> That'll be amazing. Yeah. So to my knowledge with the SIP panel construction, they're building it at the production plant and then just bringing it to your site. So essentially, it's somewhat of like a Lego Correct. right, type of installation process. Can you talk a little bit more deeply about the installation process from the plant to the site, maybe? You want to give us some context? Yep. So a refrigerator does not know where it is, if it's in the Sahara Desert or if it's Antarctica. The inside of it is 33 degrees. The freezer's at 31 or wherever you set it. The same polystyrene that's in that refrigerator that's in a Yeti cooler is encapsulated in the walls of these panels between two pieces of 7 sixteenths OSB uh, plywood. So that's the starting point. And so if you've ever seen a traditional building built or house or an apartment complex built, you've got your slab. And then what they typically do is they'll go around the edges of that slab and put a two by six or two by eight, depending on the structure, nailed to the concrete. And so the way these panels go together is that same process happens. You've got bottom plate number one connects to bottom plate number two, connects to bottom plate number three. They're all numbered from the plant. So you can literally go around the foundation and put those together like that. And then you get to your panels. Panel number one stands up in the southeast corner of the building. They've all got a little label on the bottom of them, bottom left, so that you know that that bottom left panel is always on the inside of the building. So that's the ISO 9000 certification process that these panels go through where every panel is exactly the same. Every plywood weighs the same. Every piece of foam has the same bubbles in it. Just like Coca-Cola, I don't care if you buy it anywhere in the United States, it's going to pretty much taste the same out of a can because that's their processes. That's the way most of these panels are produced or some of these panels are produced. So anyway, they go together. Panel number one connects to panel number two, connects to panel number three, all the way around that building. So literally, if you can count to nine, you can install one of these buildings. They sit down on that panel. You put glue on them. They sit there. So they're glued and then they're screwed. And the thing that I really love about them that gives the structural integrity Typically on a building, you've got your two by four standing up like this, and then you've got a nail going from this two by four into that bottom plate. And so that two by four has most of the nail in the two by four this way, very little into the piece that you're nailing it to. So we wonder why our houses blow away because we got a three inch nail with only about three quarters of an inch in that bottom plate holding it together. These things go down over that bottom plate and you got a six inch screw that screws all the way through that bottom plate all the way around. So you don't have a situation where that nail is only partly through that two by four. You've got a six inch screw all the way around this thing on top of, and on top of it being glued down. And the glue is more for air than for strength. So every one of those panels is glued together so that even though they're airtight, that bead of glue stops any air that could come in because it just can't pass. 
And so every panel is glued and then screwed together. So you've got structural integrity and you've got an airtight envelope. No air from the outside or inside goes without the ventilation system. So these things are super airtight, super efficient. We're putting antimicrobial lighting in our units because since they're so airtight, the only germs that are going to be in there are from the person that's in there. So if you can control the air in the unit, you can control the germs that are there so we can put that type of lighting in there to just try to help mitigate some of the airborne illnesses that are so prevalent in our society and in our homes where we've got all this stuff coming and going. So not only are these things super, super friendly, super, super efficient, they're airtight, they're good for our health. It also gives us the ability to create what we call naturally occurring affordable housing. Noah, you've heard that term. Yep. The reason we can do an A-class product for a resident that makes 80% of the area median income in an area that the area median income is 100000 a year. So that means a person making $80,000 a year qualifies to live here. And the way it's affordable is their light bill doesn't do this every month. So in the summertime, your light bill goes up to 400 bucks a month because you're trying to stay cool in Texas. Wintertime, it goes up to 300 bucks because you're trying to burn gas stoves and all that stuff to stay warm. Very consistent. Pay your rent. Your lights are included. Your water is included. Your cable's included. Well, your internet, not cable. We cut the card, but at least we got the internet card. And with streaming services, and so we're providing that level of housing for a place I'd love to live. You'd love to live a class. Man, we got floating toilets hanging off of the wall. I mean, these are the wind style apartments. So, I mean, super, super nice. And at our summit in September, we're actually going to have one of our bathroom pods there. So you talk about vertical integration and doing things timely. We're having all of our bathrooms manufactured in a plant environment so that they can be crane set into the unit so that the tub is there or the showers there, tubs there. The commode's hanging on the wall, the walls are painted, the pictures are on the wall, the lights are on the wall, so that we're not having to have a guy go in and set tile or set the wall board, then go in and set the tile, then go back and grout it, and then go back and do all that stuff. It's already done. And so if you could yeah. save three weeks out of 200 bathrooms, think about the speed of your project. So we're going to yeah. have one of our bathroom pods there and all of these magnificent supplies that we're building with. That's an amazing way to develop good affordable housing in today's market, especially yeah. when costs are going up, rent is going up. I mean, you're in the nonprofit space and you provide affordable housing. It's tough to get deals to pencil in today's environment. And Yannick, this is really market rate housing for everybody. We're just putting a workforce housing tag on it because that's our mission. But I can tell you this stuff will measure up against any property in any downtown market for look, durability, strength, class, beautiful, I mean, amenities, green screens in every apartment, right? So top-notch, man. Super, super nice. Yeah, man. I'm really excited to see that become mainstream. It will. You've seen it over the past 12 to 24 months, labor prices and materials, like I mentioned. It's tough to get deals to pencil these days. And then also the time factor, as I mentioned. But having these SIP panel construction opportunities, we have some lots that we're working on getting site control. So definitely a product that I'm interested in adding to my portfolio moving forward as well in Baltimore, Maryland. Especially for long-term ownership, man, the, the stuff that we see with the older properties with water, 
if you can skin these properly and wrap them properly and flash them properly, these buildings will last forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it all the time, acquiring existing old properties where it's built in 1920s and you're starting to see some of the foundations starting to, to sink a little bit or some settlement happening from over time. I mean, it can be challenging sometimes when you're trying to put a nice yeah. product under something that was built 100 years ago. So right, that's awesome. So talk to us about multifamily monopoly. And if our listeners want to learn more about development, multifamily investment, talk about multifamily monopoly. Well, thanks for that. Yannick, multifamily monopoly just came about as just another ask. Hey, man, teach us how to do this. Show us what you're doing. And so that's how it just came about. I love monopoly, love the game of it. We're in the multifamily space. So we put that name on it, multifamily monopoly, and put together a couple of courses. We got a three-day boot camp where we walk through everything from how we start buying properties to our underwriting. And we incorporate a site visit with that because we've got a couple of properties going through extensive renovations right now. And so there's no better way to teach somebody how to do something than to show them. I can tell you all day, but for me, more is caught than taught. So I could learn more from watching you do things than hearing you tell me about it. So that's how this process came about. And then, so since we're developing these apartments, I thought, man, why not just put together a developer apprenticeship program where all of these professionals that we use, our civil engineer, our broker, our attorney, our tax guy, our building science guy, our design guy, our finance person, all these people have come together to help us put these projects together. I asked them would they be interested in putting a course together to show other people how to do what we've done. And so we're in the process of recording that. And I think it'll be done by the end of the year, along with also doing a five episode pilot TV show for multifamily in multiple ways. So we're showing multifamily from a development perspective, from a buy and hold redevelopment perspective, some of the mistakes that have been made in new construction that lead to some of the problems that we're having today. When we buy old existing buildings, my video guy is actually planning that right now. We're going to start shooting the 1st of September, finish that up the end of this year as well. Try to make it entertaining, try to make it fun, try to make it informative. We're going to be pitching it to Home Depot. We're spending probably, I don't know, we're doing right now a thousand units rehab and they're supplying most of our product. So if anybody works for Home Depot listening to this, just know that we've already spoke to Mr. Blank. And uh, <laughs> But we're a little early for this year because, hey, we, this just came about, hey, last month. Hey, let's do a TV show. Let's reach out to this, that, and the other. It's like, yeah, you don't really get money from big corporations that quick, but part of our summit, And this TV show and all of that stuff, what we're doing is we're posturing for next year because next year those buildings will be finished. We've been talking about it all this year. The building in Kakana will take about nine months to build 180 units. The one in Princeton will probably take about 14 months. But by this time next year, by the next summit, we'll have people living there. So it'll be a great testament to the construction, the quality, the speed at which it was built And then we'll have this TV pilot show and then we'll have all these sponsors that want to jump on it. It's going to be amazing. That sounds like a a lot of good activity is coming (laughs) on the horizon. If you're interested in getting into the multifamily space or development, definitely check out Alvin's multifamily monopoly. I mean, he has a ton of value within his experience and his network. So Alvin, let me uh, ask you a question. You've been on this journey for 
a long time. I mean, 35 years, <laughs> 35 years um, is what I would consider to be a super veteran. It's 39 now. 39 years. Wow. 17, yeah. You know, if you had to start this marathon all over again, what would you do differently that would contribute to your success? Wow. Great question. Well, I probably would have gone to college and gotten some finance. I love math, but I would have really gone to college and learned how to master those numbers. If I had to go back that far and knew that this was where I was going to wind up, I probably would have done that. But equally as important as knowing the numbers is understanding how things are built. So I don't know that I would have done. Yeah, I would have done a whole lot of things differently. But I'm not really that disappointed with how things have turned out. I would have rather been here 25 years ago, (laughs) but who wouldn't, right? So doing things differently, I probably would have not been as afraid. Hmm. Was it afraid to make the next step or afraid to just jump out there? Afraid to fail. I wouldn't have been as afraid of what people thought of me. I wouldn't have been as afraid of people's impression of me because those are all of the things that led to those bad decisions. So let me back up a little bit further, Yannick. Somebody asked me, where did fear come from? A lot of fear for me came from trauma. So as a nine-year-old boy, I was molested. So as a nine-year-old being molested, the fear set in that something took over me that I could not control. You got a kid in a bubble and then the bubble burst and it ain't no water in the bubble. And it's like, shit. So from that moment forward, up until last month, when I put my finger on those fear-based decisions, maybe the fear of going back to something that we don't want to go back to, or maybe the fear of something that could be worse than what we came from. Don't know. Because I had never been down that road before, but that fear set into something that could have led to something a whole lot worse, right? So I think I would have tried to overcome that fear a lot sooner. That's what I would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah, man. You've you've had a, a tremendous journey in this space and, and you've had a ton of different obstacles. And the way that you have been able to, again, persist and use some of those fears to be who you are today because there's sometimes that these fears allow us to really hunker down on the bad side (laughs) exactly the bad side and sometimes we're able to turn that negative into a positive and you've done an awesome job with breaking through the challenges that you've had in your life to impact so many people in the housing space or just people in general so congrats to you on your career and I'm sure that there's a ton of great things that you're going to continuously do as you continue to grow and grow your company and just provide great product out there in the marketplace. So. Well, thanks. I'll tell you, man, the biggest thing for me now on the other side of those fear-based decisions, because there was so much trauma, the other side of that, the feel good for me was the validation of needing a validation of somebody saying, Oh, Alvin, great job. Oh, good job. From fear to that. And somewhere in the middle, Somewhere, or maybe closer to the validation side, we notice some of the good works that we're doing will will last. And I just hope that me telling my story like this can help some other men get free, man. Because had I heard some of this stuff when I was going through those fear-based situations, maybe I wouldn't have made those decisions. And maybe as I keep talking about this 
as more fear-based situations come up, I won't make decisions based on that. So as we get better, it gets better. Yeah. Well, you're certainly an inspiration to a lot of people, our listeners today, Shirley, for just sharing your story and being truthful about how you got to where you are and how those fears allowed you to make some decisions that maybe you thought weren't the best decisions, but somehow <laughs> life has a way of just unfolding how it's supposed to. Yeah. So, man, this was a great show. I really appreciate you being a guest on our show today. We talked about sit panel construction, your background, how'd you get to where you are today, your different business models that allow you to be successful in today's environment, especially on the vertical integration side. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you to the listeners today for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember, real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Run your own race. Thanks again, Alvin. Thank you, Yannick. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.